The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Goldman Sachs steps in another political mess, this time in Venezuela. And the woes afflicting Fox News reveal a new class of activists, advertisers. These are the issues we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and my colleague and co-host is, as always, Anthony Curry. Welcome, Anthony. Hello. So the big news this week, though, is President Donald Trump's decision about the Paris Accord on Climate Change. As we sit in front of our mics, he looks set to take the United States out of the December 2015 agreement. That sounds like it should be a big blow to attempts to reduce the causes of global warming. And past efforts, such as the 1997 Kyoto Protocol and the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Change Conference, ran into similar problems. This time around, though, Anthony, you argue that the exit may be anticlimactic. Hardy har har. Ho, ho, ho. So why is that? Well, I mean, there, there are several reasons. Firstly, um, unlike, say, your regular treaty that countries sign amongst themselves, this is an accord. That it's not as if one country pulling out is going to destroy the treaty. Right? So we don't have that issue. Secondly, we're in a very different position to where we were several years ago in terms of what other countries are thinking and doing. China, for example, is now, I think, the biggest polluter on the planet. It and America could never come to agreement on what to do about battling climate change, even when there were more amenable leaders in charge than Donald Trump. And it wasn't really until 2015 that then-President Obama and the Chinese sat down and actually came up with an agreement. And China is still in the agreement. China is sticking in the agreement. In fact, China is taking more of a leading role. Its president, back in Davos World Economic Forum meeting, in his speech, talked a great deal about globalization, including the need to tackle the problems of climate change. And you know, that's the thing. China has absolutely no choice in this. It's basically a, a kind of a, a where America was 40, 50 years ago before founding the Environmental Protection Agency. Just basically, it's got 67% of its groundwater is undrinkable. Its air quality is awful. And it knows it needs to do that. Now, the what China can do that America as a, as a federal government can't is basically impose this on everyone. Right. So the U.S. government can't do that. But there are other things that are at play here where, yeah. you know, Trump saying, OK, listen, we don't want to be a part of this group anymore. That doesn't really mean that everything's going to come to a halt. No, a- absolutely not. So America's political system works quite well here in this particular instance that, OK, the federal government can pull out. But the effect of that isn't that large. Yes, I mean, look, we've already seen issues out there anyway. Uh, Trump has already basically tried to gut the EPA. It hasn't got there yet. There's still most of the funding is still in the proposed budget this year. But, you know, he wants to roll back the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, which are founded on legal arguments, basically. But there's not a great deal that the federal government can do beyond that. If you look down through the political stack, as it were, you've got cities and states and other regions of the US basically committing to battling climate change. California, which would basically be one of the top, what, eight or ten economies in the world, is going so far ahead with this, it, it basically said they'll ignore anything that comes from the federal government if it, if it contravenes what it thinks is the right thing to do on climate change. Cities like New York have said, look, we're going to cut our greenhouse gas emissions by 80%, I think New York's doing, by 2050. States are doing similar things. This would include financing. New York State has a, a green bank that does a fair bit of financing. So, Unlike China, for example, if China pulled out, 
then we'd be really worried because if China pulls out, they would just stop everything they're doing. They would ramp back up their coal production. They wouldn't care about their groundwater. And are they the who is the biggest producer of greenhouse gases? I think it's now China. I'd have to double check that, but I think it's now China. America is the second biggest, but the government cannot stop what's already happening at cities and states. And also, it has absolutely or virtually no control. I mean, it has suasion, moral suasion, I suppose, although moral suasion in this government would be a hard thing to imagine. It has some degree of suasion over companies and investors. And that's the other big thing. Right? If you look at what companies are doing, several companies, especially in Silicon Valley, have been very forthright about saying we're going to go to zero carbon emissions over the next 10, 20 years. Think Apple, Facebook, Google, those kind of things. But you even have some of what you would think would be the dinosaurs of the planet. So... Exxon and other oil companies saying, look, we believe in climate change. Of course, Exxon's former CEO, Rex Tillerson, is now the Secretary of State. But its current CEO actually wrote a letter to Trump recently saying, you must keep us in the Paris Accords. What the likes of Exxon and other traditional industries want to see, I think, is America to have a seat at the table so that they are not completely disenfranchised uh, around these, these sovereign international discussions. Or we have someone like China taking the lead. That's like Exactly. Taking well, China the lead and role. the European Union are already in discussions to do just that. We may see an agreement later this week on that. And that makes perfect sense. If America's not going to take the lead, and you know, under President Obama, there were a great many things done. If you just look at, say, some of the, the past couple of years of his administration, Obama had a whole raft of people coming in to speak to him, him to speak to them, to talk about agreements, money to be spent. Trump barely even blinked when World Water Day came, and, and he came up with a vague and pointless statement on Earth Day. So the, the difference is huge. But if you're Exxon, you know, the, the amusing thing about Exxon is that the CEO sends a letter to Trump saying, please, let's stay in the Paris Agreement. On the other hand, the company is fighting a shareholder proposal to uh, give yet more information on climate change to investors. In fact, Investors just voted earlier of uh, 62% in favor of getting more information on climate change. So it's a bit weird. So it makes you think that Exxon maybe it's really more about having a seat at the table than really pushing an agenda. The United States wasn't the only country to pull out of this accord. So 195 countries signed the accord, right? There are two countries already that aren't in it, and that is Nicaragua and Syria. So welcome to that particular club. I'm, sh I'm sure it's going to help make America great again. So, yeah, I, look. Countries can do what they want, and also they can devolve. Uh, well, it is up to states, up to um, sub-states, cities, regions to do what they want. There is, despite what Trump has said in the past and what he may say again when when he decides to pull out, if he does, there is no penalty for not conforming to the goals of the Paris Climate Accord, which is to bring the uh, temperature rise since the Industrial Revolution to or keep the, the temperature rise since the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century to less than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Right, so at the moment, the Paris Climate Accords will probably get us to temperatures going up by 2.7 degrees Celsius. So we're not there yet anyway. And also, basically, America's cities and states will be the backstopping all of this. It's not just them or companies. Investors are taking a bigger and bigger role. Witness the Exxon vote uh, this week. But also, you know, you've got plenty of investors who have committed in some form or other, some of them very heavily, some of them sort of, you know, passively, to uh, do a lot more to make sure that they that companies know that they care about climate change. There are various lobby groups out there. One of the main ones is CDP, uh, which has, uh, which represents investors with, a, I think, now more than a, a hundred trillion of assets who want more disclosures on water risks, carbon risks, all this kind of thing. So there is a huge amount of money out there that wants to make sure that companies 
adhere to what needs to be done. And also, you know, what investors are worried about and what financiers are worried about is that where their money comes from, which at the end of the day is people like you and me investing our money, that money is gradually going from the baby boomers to the millennials and younger generations who want to see more done. That's why you've got a lot of banks setting up various climate change initiatives, uh, looking at uh, coming up with climate change-friendly investment pres- uh, guidelines, that kind of thing. So it's not just governments. It's not just regional governments. It's companies and investors as well. Okay, to, to, to boil this down, it's yet another bad business decision made by Trump. Yeah, well, you know, he's made many of them, right? This This one is is yet again a great example of where he's not really following the money. He's worried about, he says, the coal industry, uh, even though Gary Cohen, one of his economic advisors, said last week that um, basically the jobs probably aren't coming back. But the coal industry has about 140,000 jobs. Renewable energy has two to three times that amount just in direct comparison to that. If you include transportation, cars, everything working around trying to get an alternative energy future up there, you could, under some circumstances, say three million jobs are dependent on on um, new sources of energy. I think that's a stretch. But nonetheless, coal isn't going anywhere fast. And even one of Trump's other other policies, which is to open up more natural gas and, and oil and fracking sites, um, that has a direct impact on the price of natural gas, which is already very low. And that price, with more, with more supply coming through, will probably drop, which means it's even harder for coal to make money. So his whole way of thinking this through is pretty daft. The one thing he does have on his in his favour, I think, is is his plan for spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure, with two hundred million dollars from the U.S. government, um, and the rest coming from private. That's nowhere near enough. We're looking at you know trillions of dollars is needed in this country and abroad to improve infrastructure, whether it's energy, uh, whether it's water, whether it's sustainable um, agriculture. Um, but you know, a trillion dollars helps, and some of that's going to go to projects that arguably you could say is done for climate change. Aha! All right. Well, thank you for that, Anthony. Pleasure. Goldman Sachs may be stepping into it again. The investment bank bought nearly three billion dollars worth of bonds issued from Venezuela's state oil firm at a deep discount. Here to discuss why this could likely blow up in their faces is Breaking Views Associate Editor Tom Berkeley. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Jen. All right, so let's start with some of the details. Goldman Sachs got these bonds issued from PDVSA for about 31 cents on the dollar, roughly. 31 cents on the dollar. These are 6% coupon bonds, but at that price, the yield, I think, is approaching 40%. So pretty, uh, pretty juicy returns. So good returns. But so far, the deal has raised uh, a lot of <laughs> issues and some some protests. Let's take a step back here. What exactly is going on and why is this kind of like weird territory for Goldman to be in? Well, first, you've got the whole uh, deteriorating political and economic situation in Venezuela. Right. But things are really bad there right now. Really bad. People I can't mean, get food. I mean, you know, it, it's, 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 there's uh, shortages of food. There have been riots. There's been a lot of met with a lot of violence by the... Um, uh, by the police and paramilitary authorities, nearly 60 people have died in the past two months, and this this has been going in cycles now for several years. Uh, under Nicolas Maduro, who took over from Hugo Chavez back in 2013, he's just doubled down in this sort of strongman, authoritarian, socialist policies. Uh, so there, there is, you know, there's very little that the currency is is is, is melted away. They're going to have a on track to have a thousand percent inflation this year, the kind of thing we haven't seen in a sizable economy in in years. I mean, that, that's true hyperinflation. 
General Motors has uh, given up its plant there. It's hard to imagine what actually they were producing because it's kind of hard to operate in an environment like that. But also, Venezuela has the world's largest oil field, if that's correct, and that's what PDVSA basically is, essentially. It's running their oil and gas. More reserves in the U.S., more than even Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and that's, that's incredible. And is, is the company that exploits it. And PDVSA has the credit standing to actually borrow in international markets. They are the main uh, benchmark for Venezuelan credit because the state itself is, is pretty toxic, even in, in investors' minds. Okay, so now part of the problem right now with the lack of food and, and just the, the political uprising and people just being generally unhappy is that the price of oil is basically, the, the, the fact that it's down, this has kind of caused a lot of the problems because, you know, a couple of years ago when it was up, it, you know, things were going well, and now we're seeing some real problems with the country. So now... With Goldman Sachs buying these bonds, what what makes this different than some of the other deals? Well, the opposition, uh, and there's a, a pretty strong opposition. As a matter of fact, the opposition controls the Congress, but because Maduro has managed to effectively rewrite the rules and denude the con- Congress of any power, uh, they're largely toothless. But you know, there there is still there there are you know elections scheduled. There is a, a possibility uh, that you know, in the not too distant future there could be uh, the opposition could come to power. And what the uh, the head of the Congress, uh, Julio Borges, said um, the other day after finding out about this deal was that they, you know, they consider this really an odious transaction and they will look to, you know, make those bonds that that Goldman Sachs has bought not valuable, make them uh, invalid. Uh, so that's that's a risk. Um, now, a lot of investors, it must be said, hold these bonds. Venezuela is... Um, you know, is a sizable part of the emerging markets. Venezuelan debt, by the most widely measured index issued by J.P. Morgan for emerging markets debt, has about a 2% weighting. And much of that is PDVSA bonds. So, you know, you know, anyone who's got any emerging markets in their own personal portfolio, a 401k, you know, pension funds and all the rest, lots of people are exposed to it. The difference here is that, you know, in the midst of a crisis, this is one of the few avenues that the government has to actually raise money. Uh, foreign exchange reserves have fallen. Um, you know, there's, there's been little money to actually stock the store shelves. So in this case, for what happened, the central bank actually had been issued these bonds a few years ago uh, for all intents and purposes. And the central bank is completely separate from PDVSA. It's, it's separate from PDVSA, but, but it's, it's, state, an, it's an arm of the government. So. Uh, the government needs cash. Uh, the central bank has got a PDVSA bonds on its book, and it can go out and find buyers. So, uh, you know, it's the idea that this is a uh, Goldman says this is a secondary transaction. We went through a broker, and yes, by all accounts, they did go through a broker. But um, you know, for a firm of Goldman's, you know, experience and acumen to say they didn't realize the real nature of the transaction is kind of strains credulity. This was a $3 billion bond issue that um, had never traded because apparently it was issued straight to the central bank. Uh, Goldman bought $2.8 billion of the $3 billion uh, at $0.31 cents on the dollar, which also suggests that this is not a, a normal transaction. Um, so, you know, it, it has given, you know, a lifeline to the government. And the government had been trying to arrange a number of other transactions, and it had done a few 
uh, in some cases using PDVSA debt with other banks in, in recent months. So this is not your average secondary market bond purchase by a, an investment fund. So d- does that mean that Goldman is, is being held to a higher standard than some other banks? You could certainly argue that that's the case. But the size of the transaction, the nature of it, and it's pretty transparent that what, what the, the funding mechanism behind this is all about. Um, you know, so I, I think they should have realized that they would be getting some attention for this transaction. And remember, this is a firm that's done a number of significant politically loaded deals in recent years. Yeah, I was going to say their history with the emerging markets and various other transactions suggests that there could be some trouble ahead. This is an investment bank that did currency swaps that helped mask Greece's debt back before the debt crisis, and they got a lot of heat in Europe and in Greece for that transaction. They also made a ton of money underwriting bond issues for 1MDB, a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund, in the earlier part of this decade. And that fund is now being investigated by authorities in the U.S. and Switzerland for fraud and money laundering on on a massive scale. So, I mean, yes, Goldman's a very plugged-in firm. They can find ample opportunities, and they're often willing to to do deals where other people are not, which is how they, you know, have their record of profitability. But, you know, they do come with or can come with a certain risk of reputation, and I think that's – you know, that's clearly what we're seeing in the case of Venezuela. Okay. Well, Tom, thank you for that. I know you'll be following it as it unfolds. Thanks. Fox News has committed one of the cardinal sins of journalism. It has become the story rather than just reporting it. But the sexual harassment scandals involving both its top executive and its highest rated star along with a conspiracy theory promulgated by another show host, have not only hit the headlines, they've also worried or incensed advertisers enough that many pulled their business. Jen, you've been looking at this. Tell us what is going on here. Advertisers are now running the show. Isn't that the opposite of what should be happening for a news platform? Yeah, so basically you're right. So we have two things happening here. One is that Fox News is a complete mess. Ever since Roger Ailes, who was the chairman and architect of the network news channel, he was basically accused of uh, allowing sexual harassment. Um, He was accused of it, like just having an environment and flourishing allowing this stuff to happen. He was booted. And committing it himself. And committing himself, allegedly. So he was booted back in the summer. He has since passed away. And there's been a fallout. So basically, Bill O'Reilly, he has been accused of sexual harassment. And a bunch of advertisers, at least at least 50, and some big names, including like Mercedes, decided that they were going to boycott his show. And all of a sudden, uh, Bill O'Reilly got the boot. So Bill O'Reilly uh, has been, I mean, regardless of what you think of his agenda, has been one of the biggest success stories in U.S. television news over the past few decades. Sure. Right? So he was one. He was one of the the, the founding hosts of uh, Fox News. Like he's been with the channel forever. Um, his ratings were always, you know, reaching tons of people, at least three million people. Mm-hmm. Um, He's he's a great success. So the fact that they kicked him aside for this, you know, it says a lot because the advertisers were and again, there were dozens and dozens of them, you know, voicing their opinion. So which brings me to Sean Hannity and what happened recently. So Sean Hannity is also one of the major network stars of Fox News. He has a primetime show. He reaches, you know, two point six million people on average. So he's 
propagating this conspiracy theory about the death of a Democratic National Committee member. Uh, And, you know, foxnews.com wrote an article about this. They ended up retracting the article. Sean Hannity was basically doubling down. And a handful of advertisers said, wait a minute, we're going to pull our ads. We don't want to be around this kind of content. So what's interesting here is that you're starting to see advertisers as activists broadly. And this is an unusual action for I mean, them. We, we know they'll, they'll, they'll often, you know, whether it's in print or in television or radio, they'll, they'll often be prone to pulling advertising or threatening to pull it if they don't like the way a story is slanted about their own business, for example. Or there's a fear that that may happen. But actually to, to, to take on what seems to be more of a, a social cause here. But now we've got big cases involving three of the biggest people in the in in the business which have set advertisers off on a tear to, to try and change things right and it's not just fox news let's step back this happened with google a couple months ago when advertisers found out in the uk that their ads were running next to questionable content on youtube they were really upset they there was a huge boycott uh, Havas, which is one of the largest uh, advertising firms in the world, they decided not to advertise in, in the UK with, with YouTube and a lot of other companies followed. So it's not just Fox that they're targeting. It's basically they're standing back and saying, wait a minute, we can make some sort of difference here. And this is unusual because we have seen other situations like this in the past. Here in the United States, for example, the NFL, the National Football League, a couple of years ago, they were embroiled a lot of problems, uh, you know, including head injuries, causing concussions. They were kind of sweeping that under the rug. And then a lot of domestic violence committed by a lot of football players. Some of it caught on video. Some of it caught on video. I mean, just nasty stuff. Yeah. Advertisers didn't make a peep. I mean, nobody pulled their sponsorships. Uh, a few of them maybe ran a spot in the Super Bowl kind of addressing domestic violence. But that was about it. You didn't really see it. And then on a global you know, standpoint, when FIFA was going through its bribery scandal, I mean, you didn't see any of the sponsors really pulling out of FIFA either. So the fact that all of a sudden, they're kind of like, you know, basically grabbing the banner and deciding like, we're going to be, you know, a little more proactive, and, you know, some social issues is, you know, I've never seen that before. As an advertiser, you want to know where your stuff is going to appear. You don't want to be surprised. If you're selling cigarettes, you don't want it next to a story saying cigarettes kill you. So that doesn't surprise me as much, but more that the idea of going after, and this is almost like single issues here that have nothing to do with the company's business. Well, yeah, and so there's that. But the, there, there are also some other subtle things happening here. One is that uh, social media has made it much easier for consumers to kind of you know register their um, dislike, and they can tie products up into this very easily. So I think sexual harassment, it's pretty it's a no-brainer. Like, you just want to kind of steer clear of that. So I'm sure they're doing it for, for that reason. Also, Fox News is starting to see some ratings decline. So they're probably, you know, this is could be an easier decision. Right. And with Google, Google is dominant in digital advertising. And this makes a lot of advertisers nervous. So you know, there, there are other forces at play here. Um, but, you know, still, the fact that they're even doing this is unusual. You think it has much further to run? I mean, could you see them taking on a broader role? Or is this, are we just seeing that this is like almost at the edges there, sort of pushing out a little bit? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, like, philosophically, I think we've seen a lot more of this since basically the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. You're seeing corporations kind of stepping up into this role. I mean, not just 
advertisers. But, you know, you're kind of seeing them taking a stand on, you know, immigration and things that typically companies and brands keep an arm's length. Well, they also took a stand on the transsexual um, bathroom issue in North Carolina. Right, that's uh, correct. A year or so ago. And yeah. um, was it Indiana that, that came up with the... Um, the anti-gay law uh, for, for about selling wedding cakes, I think. Oh, right. It was Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're starting to see companies kind of, you know, basically take on this mantle of, of you know, social right. criticism. But can't it go the other way? I mean, I was reading, I think yesterday, that, that the financial firm USAA had restored its adverts to the, the Hannity time slot, or was thinking of, because it had enough people complaining, saying, well, you know, we, we, we like his show. Sure. It could, it could certainly go in the other direction. And again, with Sean Hannity, um, it, it's a smaller example, right? There were just a handful of advertisers. There, right. there weren't that many. It wasn't the same scope as Bill O'Reilly. So, yeah, that can go both ways. Uh, companies certainly are, you know, everyone is much more partisan these days. And, you know, a company can be caught up in that pretty easily as well. Okay. Thanks, Jen, for talking us through that. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank as well as Jen, our guest, Tom Berkeley. Our producers this week also deserve our appreciation, Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We'll be back next week and would love you to listen in. Thanks for joining us.